According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Word of God. Join me, if you would, in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs 16, we're looking at four villains in verses 12 through 15. If I have that right, four villains, that's not right, verses 27 through 30. 27 through 30. Those are the verses we're looking at. All right. Proverbs 16, uh, 27 says, A worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. And this is what a son of Belial will do. And he's described here. And not only does the Bible describe it very vividly, but I think all of us have been exposed to uh, different worthless people over the years. And uh, we have the description here. Verse 28, a perverse man, a man of perversions, plural. Never just one all by itself. Uh, it seems if you get caught up in a, some kind of a perversion, there's going to be a, a second one and a third one, and it just goes on and on. That's the nature of perversity. And so the perverse man in verse 28, a slanderer separates intimate friends. Verse 29, a man of violence entices his neighbor and leads him in a way that is not good. And that's where we ran out of time a couple weeks ago. Last time we were here, I want to put that together and then look at the winker, the wicked winker from verse 30. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. And the little thrill that the uh, this, this final villain, I think, is the worst of, of the four. I think he's a, a composite. That, and some people actually think that there's only three villains in this text, and the, the fourth represents uh, kind of the, the summary or the totality of the first three, because he is the first three combined in, uh, to be the worst of all in, uh, in what he's doing. So we'll see that this morning. Then we'll be ready to, to finish the chapter in verses 31 through 33. Uh, Proverbs 16 does close with three timeless truths. And... Um, We'll have to invite some extra gray-headed people to come on the day when we get to verse 31. A gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. So uh, that'll be a fun class to teach. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask our Father for His blessing on our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for the blessings we have to assemble together. I want to thank you, Father, for the Schaefer Theological Seminary Pastors Conference last week, and it was a blessing to be able to attend there and uh, to learn the things that were presented. I thank you for those speakers, thank you for those pastors, and the blessings of, uh, of those times of fellowship. We now, uh, this morning, look forward to feasting once again here in the book of Proverbs, and uh, thank you for brothers and sisters that have come together to receive instruction. We, uh, we ask for your blessing to teach us this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, <clears throat> and so in the outline, this is main point nine, if you are following along and taking notes, uh, main point nine, four villains are portrayed and exposed by the wisdom of God. This warning echoes the parental wisdom warning that's given in chapter 6. That's where I misread the point when I said it was verses 12 through 15. Those are the verses from chapter 6. So these are the four villains here in verses 27 through 30. And it's a warning that's been given before. 
It was uh, something that your parents warned you about back in the day, because in the parental wisdom portion of Proverbs, that's Proverbs 6, it was the parents warning the son about these kind of villains. And uh, now in uh, the personal and public wisdom portion of the book, it uh, is uh, a warning from the Lord to uh, believers that in your own adult capacity, uh, these are the people you should be looking out for in your uh, daily walk. And so uh, the subpoints then are pretty easy, A, B, C, and D, as we go verse by verse through these villains. We talked about the man of Belial under main point A, and uh, talked about the man of perversities under point B, talking about how he follow. not only does he have these perversities, but then he follows up the perversities uh, with uh, strife, or he follows, I'm sorry, he follows up his strife with malicious murmuring. The strife is mentioned in the A portion of the verse, while the uh, murmuring happens in the B portion of the verse. And so, it, and I think with each step of the way, we're observing a progression of intensity, a progression. I mean, the man of Belial is bad enough in the things that he does. The man of perversities, he also is doing bad things, and then he's adding insult to injury, and then he's adding additional damage by virtue of the the murmurings, the slander, the whispering, the uh, damage that he does subsequent to the actual deeds themselves. So that's an intensification. And then the man of violence, the Ish Hamas. And we discussed the the fact that even to this day, in uh, you know that Hebrew and Arabic are cognate languages, and so a lot of times the vocabulary will be comparable. It'll be similar expressions. And uh, so when you when you hear about the terrorist organization Hamas in the news, that's Hamas uh, that's named uh, after an Arabic verb, but it's uh, cognate to the Hebrew verb that we have here uh, connected to violence. And so the Ish Hamas, the man of Hamas, the man of violence. And uh, this is what we have described in Isaiah 53, that uh, Jesus ha- uh, was n- not a man of violence. That's that's significant. It's not just an issue of we we, we don't want to think of this as just a sin weakness. Uh, there's actually a mindset behind this. Okay, and so this is what we're dealing with here. Uh, Genesis six. Let's just talk about. I think um, did we look at these? It's been so long I've forgotten, and you've probably forgotten too. So uh, the term Hamas that's here in Proverbs 16.29 was used previously in chapter 3. It was used previously in chapter 10. Let's look at those just to get us back into a Proverbs way of thinking. Proverbs 3.31, do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. All right, that's Proverbs 3.31. And why would you envy that? See, why would you envy a man of violence? Well, the carnal mind observes a carnal benefit to carnal activity. And things that are, that are unthink, unthinkable when you're in fellowship become, um, you know, you, you get curious, you wonder about it, you think, wow, you know, if I wasn't a pastor, would I do that? If I wasn't a believer, would I do that? I know what my sin nature would do when I'm out of fellowship. And so you need to be mindful of these things. Of course, you can envy a man of violence, not because you enjoy the violence, but when you see uh, the benefits, when you see what he gets for his violence and how he gets away with his sin and how he gets away with uh, with these things. Do not choose any of his ways, it says. And then notice, for the devious, 
The devious are an abomination to the Lord. That's the very next verse after verse 31. But he is intimate with the upright. And so there's a connection there. There's the violence and then there's devious. There's a connection between the the brutality of the violence and the deceit that goes with it. That's going to be the point of emphasis here in chapter 16, that the man of violence here is deceptive about what he does. He's leading people into his traps. And so the warning uh, is given there. Proverbs 10 and verse 6 and verse 11. Twice in Proverbs 10 this warning is given. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So uh, connected once again with the violence, with the Hamas, is deception, subterfuge, some kind of uh, concealment. Uh, Likewise in verse 10, he who is it verse 10? It's verse um, 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. So it's more than just uh, brutality. It's more than just uh, might makes right and using physical uh, power to dominate others, but it's very deceptive in how it's done. And uh, that's uh, the combination presented again and again and again. Genesis 6, the whole earth was filled with violence. This is the nature of the uh, uh, circumstances leading up to the flood. The fact that fallen angels were coming down to the earth and, and uh, having babies with human women, producing hybrid uh, angel-human offspring that are hybrid, that uh, not having human fathers, of course, they're not Adamic, they're not, uh, they're not savable by the second Adam because they're not lost in the first Adam. And you end up with these hybrid beings, these Nephilim creatures, and uh, the great wickedness that filled the earth in those days, making normal mortals, more normal humans look like grasshoppers. Uh, the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. That's uh, Genesis 6.11. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, with Hamas, because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. And uh, there's a whole lot that goes into this when you want to study angelic conflict and the fall of Satan and the uh, subjection of the world to come. It's not to angels that he subjects the world to come. It's to humanity, it's to mankind that uh, is, uh, is blessed in that way. Isaiah 53, the fact that the man of sorrows, our Savior, was not a man of violence. That is uh, indicated there in, uh, in a very uh, particular way. The fact that... Um, course he's sinless and perfect we know that we know that he's the spotless lamb of god if he had any sin he would not be qualified to be the redeemer uh so that that would be any sin that's that's you know uh fornication or stealing or lying or i mean any sin but the violence though is uh is highlighted so it says um verse eight by oppression and judgment he was taken away Oppression and judgment. Understand this connected to violence in, in the flood chapter we just read in Genesis 6 and now we have it here. 
Uh, As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. And so this is dealing with the national sins of Israel, the national transgressions, the curse that Israel was subject to as uh, in violation of Mosaic law. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And so these things are highlighted. Yes, any other sin, of course, would would have disqualified him from being the kinsman redeemer of humanity and bearing the sins and doing the work of atonement and doing the work on the cross. Any sin would have done that. But these sins in particular now, violence and deceit, these sins in particular now are addressing the fall of Satan and they're addressing the circumstances by which now Jesus, more than just redeeming humanity, the work that Jesus did on the cross in in the resolution to the angelic conflict and in the preparation to give Israel their new covenant. That Israel cannot receive a new covenant until there is a prepared mediator to mediate that new covenant. And that's being highlighted here as well. More than just being sinless. Being sinless in general to be the savior of humanity is one thing. But no violence and no deceit particularly becomes the focus for him to deal with the satanic rebellion and the issues connected to Satan and the uh, the angelic fall. All right. Wow, there's a lot in there and I'm not going to get deeper into that this morning, but just pay attention to it and understand that there's more. Uh, Isaiah 53 is not just redundantly telling us over and over again uh, a substitute for Adamic sinners, substitute for Adamic sinners, substitute for Adamic sinners. It's not redundantly making that same point again and again. It's actually making multiple points in a progression of issues where, yes, he's the redeemer for Adamic sinners, but he's also the redeemer for uh, Jewish Mosaic lawbreakers as a separate issue. And he's also uh, one that's going to reconcile in the angelic realm, one that's going to deal with that, and he can do so without violence or deceit being found in his mouth. Okay, perhaps the Lord will take us into those realms again, but just not today. Returning back to Proverbs 16.29, what we learn is, is that the man of violence employs enticements. And he uses those enticements to lead his neighbor into harm. And specifically, that's the issue there. And you wonder, well, what motivates that? Why? What motivates that? It's like, uh, as we said, the man of Belial is bad enough for the things that he does. Uh, The man of perversities is bad enough for the things that he does and then the things that he says when he whispers and slanders and he adds additional damage to what he does. Now this man of violence carries the progression even more because not only is he afflicting violence, not only is he bringing harm to his victims, but he does so through deceit, he does so through coordination, he does so through uh, deniability. Deniability. Leading his neighbor into harm. And uh, and this is uh, this is more diabolical than anything else. The fact that uh, again we read it, a man of violence entices his neighbor. You know, well, why bother? 
you know, why bother deceiving him? Why bother enticing him? Why bother luring him into, what are you luring him into anyway? What's the thrill in that? If you're a man of violence, why don't you just go over to your neighbor's house and, you know, beat him up, you know, pound him into the ground, kill him, do whatever you're going to do. What, what's the thrill with the deceit? What's the purpose for the enticement? Okay, And now we start to see more and more of the, of the thrill that comes in the carnal mindedness whereby not only do you want to do all the, 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 the horrible things you want to do, but you want to do in such a way where you're not going to get caught. You're not going to get caught where you can do it again. You can do it again with the next unsuspecting victim that you can get away with it and keep getting away with it. In fact, not only can you inflict your violence, you can still maintain an outer image in the community. You can still maintain a public display as a, as a righteous being. See, Satan puts himself on display as an angel of light. He, uh, he's a fallen angel, and yet he displays himself as oh so righteous and oh so justified in all that he does. And so there's many reasons why uh, a man of violence would want to be enticing and deceitful. He leads him in a way that is not good. Now he's still going to afflict the violence, of course. That's what he does. He's a man of violence. But he's going to inflict his violence after the deceit so that he can continue what he's doing in, uh, in these things. All right. And this uh, does represent that same progression. And so we have the enticements. And uh, Proverbs has really given us several warnings on enticements in Proverbs 1.10. You know, when they entice you, don't consent. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without cause. You know, they're, they're throwing it out there. And if you want to run with that crowd, you can run with that crowd. But wisdom says don't do that. Don't consent. When you get caught up in that mentality, in that mindset, that's, uh, that's following the way, uh, the way of Satan. And we want no part of that. We want to follow the Lord in the way of humility. He had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That's who we follow. We follow our Savior. Uh, more enticements are found in Exodus twenty two sixteen. Exodus twenty two sixteen, and this is, uh, I think, a nice verse to emphasize the fact that sin. We think of it as personal sin, but it has uh, it has community impact. It will uh, not only does it defile you and put you out of fellowship, but also you can entice others, and then you end up defiling a whole community. Anyway, so there's other applications. In Exodus 22, enticement is, is termed as seduction. Seduction. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay a dowry for her to be his wife. So there's, there's the same term for enticement is seduction. And so we get that. There are different enticements that are more uh, effective on men and there's other enticements that are more effective on women and there's other enticements that are more effective on children and, and we get that. Satan, of course, is a master of all of them. Judges 14, more enticements. And we see with all of these enticements 
um, it's it's Satan's wisdom in trying to manipulate other people for his own selfishness, right? The 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 man we just saw when you're seducing a virgin and you're you're manipulating her so for your own lust, your own selfishness, your own purposes. And that's always the that's always the case when we. Uh, preach the gospel, when we preach the word, when we, when we uh, are persuasive in our ministry, it's not a selfish persuasiveness. We're persuading for the Lord's sake. We're persuading for the other person's sake. When we, uh, so even though it might be the same verb, <laughs> it might be the same verb when we are you know, um, influencing others through the word of God. There should be an influence, but it's not a selfish influence. It's selfless in love for uh, the things of God. Judges fourteen fifteen, It came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle or we will burn you and your father's house with fire. <laughs> okay? And then we get this. This is uh, the whole story of Samson. This is very well known. And they've been trying to, they've been trying to get him for years. And, uh, and uh, they're going to succeed. They're going to succeed with uh, Delilah finally. And uh, the issue there happens again in chapter 16. Now we get introduced to Delilah. The lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, entice him. The same uh, enticements that the man of Hamas uh, engages in. Entice him and see where his great strength lies and how we may overpower him and we may bind him to afflict him. And then we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Man, all the lords of the Philistines, there's five of them, and uh, she is going to be the richest woman around. So there's enticements. First Kings 22, in a passage I find very interesting uh, related to fallen angels and demons and how God uses even uh, such things for His own purpose. 1 Kings 22. This is a, a marvelous message. I, I can't wait to meet Micaiah someday. He was an Old Testament prophet. We don't know as much about him. He's very obscure. He's featured here and nowhere else. We, uh, uh, he doesn't get his own book. It's not like he's a writing prophet. There's, he doesn't get the book of you know, Micaiah named after him. Uh, but when he gets to uh, preach to uh, Jehoshaphat, when he gets to preach here, and uh, he's a northern prophet to a king that, that hates him, <laughs> but when uh, Jehoshaphat comes to town, then uh, he gets to preach to the, uh, to the king in the north as well. There's, uh, there's a lot in this chapter. Uh, I know I'm headed for verses 20, 21, and 22, but just to set the table here. Uh, the chapter begins, three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, and so this is not named Ahab here, but that is who it is. These two kings are together now. The good king, Jehoshaphat was a good king for Judah in the south, and then Ahab is a terrible king in uh, in the north. They were all bad in the north. 
And uh, so they decide, hey, let's go to war together. Let's go to war and, and try to, you know, have uh, some protection against Ramoth Gilead. And uh, so the king of the north invites him and says, yeah, you want to go to war with me? You know? And uh, Jehoshaphat says, okay, but uh, let's, let's inquire of the Lord first. Verse 5, moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. You know, real embarrassing. Shouldn't, you know, your king, before we go to war, shouldn't we ask the Lord God of Israel? You know, like a bunch of pastors that go to dinner and then they said, did anybody pray? <laughs> One of us should pray at least. I mean, isn't that what we do before we eat? All right. And so uh, the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. And remember, remember these guys, these are horrible. Elijah battled these guys. They got terrible prophets of Baal and, and, and awful things there in the north. And asked them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it to the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? See, Jehoshaphat was not impressed with that crowd of, of, of other prophets that, that Ahab had there in the north. So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man. There's only one left in the northern kingdom. And that's interesting to me because Elijah thought he was the one man left. And uh, he wasn't really. There were more that were faithful then. But uh, the king of the north says, there's one man left uh, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he, <laughs> I hate him. I, you know, he always says bad things about me. He doesn't prophesy good concerning me. He's Micaiah, the son of Emiah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. So they bring him in. Now this message of his, this is amazing. And uh, so he comes in. The king of Israel called an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, son of Emiah. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in the robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them, that whole crowd. And so Zedekiah, the son of Hananah, made horns of iron for himself and said, thus says the Lord, with these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. Well, that looks impressive. And uh, one thing you've got to say, these guys are dedicated. You know, when, when Elijah was battling with them, they were slashing themselves and bleeding everywhere. And so all the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So, here comes Micaiah. And uh, the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. How about that? You know, before a pastor gets in the pulpit and somebody pulls him aside, one of the deacons says, Psst, by the way, everybody is saying this. You got to get on board. Okay? You can't, you know, all these other prophets are saying victory, go to war. Don't, uh, don't rock the boat. Don't contradict what we're saying. Okay? And keep in mind, unless you're a real prophet, you don't need this. Okay? I mean, a real prophet just speaks what God tells him to speak. A real prophet receives a message and just says, thus saith the Lord, and hangs it out there. And God's the one that has to make good on what God says is going to happen, because that's what God does. But if you're a charlatan, if you're a fraud, if you're some kind of a phony, then you've got to get your story straight. And then you've got to coordinate with all the other liars that are trying to get their story straight. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's what they do. All right. So Micaiah says, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. Telling this, uh, this messenger to 
you know, to drop dead. All right. So when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. That's what he wanted to hear, wasn't it? But it makes him mad because he knows he doesn't mean it. The king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Okay. Oh, there's so much in this chapter. All right. So um, he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. In other words, don't go to war. You're not in the word of God. You're not growing. You're not under the Lord, your shepherd. You're following these false gods. Go home. Don't go to war. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? Told you so. I hate that prophet. Now we get into the invisible world. Now we see what happened in heaven preceding this whole chapter, preceding all those 400 prophets that the, the, the northern king was, was consulting. Micaiah said, this is 1 Kings twenty-two nineteen. now, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And the whole reason for turning to this chapter is because of that verb there, entice. That's what we're talking about. Okay, It's an enticement uh, on the part of a man of violence here. All right. Just like in Proverbs 16, the man of violence is an enticer. So the Lord said, who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, one another said that. And a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. So understand, these angels in heaven all right? And they are divided on the right and on the left. That tells us that there's elect angels there and there's fallen angels there. And uh, remember, Satan is not totally banned from heaven until the rapture, until the, the tribulation. Then he's expelled. He still has access. He's up there constantly accusing us. He's up there constantly volunteering for missions like this. Ooh, I want to attack Job. Ooh, I want to attack uh, Jesus. Ooh, I want to attack Ahab. And when God needs volunteers, he has no problem finding them. You know, does anybody want to go uh, entice Ahab? And one said this, while another said that. So immediately, you know, the whole room starts a buzz. Ooh, 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 pick me, pick me. So a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said, him how? I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. So here is the invisible world that is empowering those false prophets we were reading about in the earlier verse. I will be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Go and do so. All right. So this is just a little behind the scenes glimpse. And then God himself does not tempt. God himself does not deceive. God himself... But he will give permission for fallen angels to do that. He will give permission for these evil spirits to do that. That's why we read, uh, remember King Saul? The, the text says an evil spirit from the Lord would terrorize him. And he tried to throw a spear and pin David to the wall because an evil spirit from the Lord was terrifying King Saul. 
When God gives you over to that kind of discipline, that's, look out, that's, that's I'd, I'd rather have the sin and the death and something like that. I'd rather to be afflicted here on this earth by, by fallen angels and God gives them permission to afflict me? God gave one angel of Satan permission to afflict Paul and he became a thorn in the flesh for 14 years and longer. All right, so this is what they do. They come out and they entice deceiving spirits. He said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. To me, the one saving aspect is that they are enticers. They are deceivers. And we do have protection. We don't have to listen to the enticement. We still have volition to choose to reject the enticements, to listen to the Lord, to, uh, to humble ourselves, to get back in fellowship, to listen to what the Lord has to say, to be like Jehoshaphat in this chapter and say, uh, does the Lord have anything to say about this? Why are we listening to these deceiving spirits, these false prophets? All right. So that's the issue there. In all of this, I think it's clear that this man of violence is a horrible character. All of these are horrible characters. So we get to the fourth one then. The wicked winkers. Proverbs 16.30 Now in all the progression, I think we do see that this one is a, is a recap of the first three. This one is the totality of the first three, if you, if you think about it. Because we have a repetition of some of the vocabulary from the earlier verses. For example, devising perverse things. We've got a, a re- repetition of the perversion language that we had with the second villain. And so that happens here. We also have the compression of the lips, a repetition of, of uh, the verbal emphasis that, that came up with the slanderer and with the enticer in, uh, in verses 28 and 29. So Proverbs 16.30 says, He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. I think the worst thing with this fourth villain is that he keeps his hands clean. He doesn't get his his own hands dirty. He invents evil to get others to do it. The wink is a signal. The wink is the indicator for the other guy to go do the thing that needs to be done. The winking of the eye, the tapping of the foot, the, the, uh, the other signals that are given. It shows conspiracy and coordination wicked winkers conspire and coordinated coordinated calamity that's what they do instituting it with others to get involved wicked winkers conspire and coordinate calamity and you know this is where it's it's uh taking what god has designed and twisting it into an evil application this is what satan has done Satan was uh, not content simply to say his five I wills and go off and be the Lone Ranger. He took a third of the angels with him. It was his, uh, it's the, the nature of this as it proceeds to its worst stage is you start to assemble your own forces and then you start to oppose the will of God. Conspiring and coordinating. And God takes, uh, you know, God blesses us with communication. God blesses us with the capacity to work together. 
And, uh, and what did man start to do after the fall, after the flood? They started to work together to build the Tower of Babel. And God makes it very clear that when human carnality coordinates its, its carnal you know, mutual effort, it's, it's just multiplying and magnifying the, the rebellion against God. So why he entered into judgment there at Babel and he scattered the people in their languages. Here's uh, this, this uh, coordinated, uh, conspiring and coordinating to bring about this evil. And it's, it's not why God designed us to be the uh, communicators that we are. Proverbs 6, verses 12 through 15, as we mentioned, was the first time such things were described. A worthless person, a wicked man, is one who walks with a perverse mouth, who winks with his eyes, who signals with his feet, who points with his fingers. So there's coordination in this. There's conspiracy in this. You've led somebody into the trap. You've, uh, you've met them with the soldiers and you identify the, the Christ with a kiss so that uh, the signal is given and they can arrest the one that you kiss. Who points with his fingers who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil. It's continuous. Like it says in in Genesis 6, the intent of his thoughts of his heart was only on evil continuously. Who spreads strife, therefore his calamity will come suddenly. Instantly he will be broken and there will be no healing. And so when you're looking at this in Proverbs 6, 12-15, when you see it restated in Proverbs 16, 30, you realize that it's this fourth villain. It's this final villain. He's really the, the main culprit. He's the head honcho. He's the one that's providing structured organization for everybody else that's been preceded in that narrative. Conspire and coordinated calamity. Micah 7 and verse 3, another text I like that I think addresses this. The inventiveness. Did you see that inventiveness in Proverbs 6? How he's constantly, he never stops dreaming of more evil. And uh, his heart, with perversing his heart, continually devises evil. Well, God the Creator created humanity in His image. We are inventive, we are imaginative, we are creative. We should use the powers of our our human powers and capacity for inventiveness to glorify God, to to compose a song, to write a a song, to to paint a, a piece of art, to teach a class, to raise up children, use creativity in whatever way for the glory of Jesus Christ. But don't take your God-given creativity and invent some new perversion that no sinner before you has ever thought of yet. Because I tell you, we've got you know, all these thousands of years of human history and I, just when I think we've invented everything comes another invented perversion and you think, wow, really? How dehumanizing can you get in your inventiveness of evil? Micah 7 and verse 3 Now this is Micah, not Micaiah. This is a different prophet from the one we were just reading about. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah's the marvelous prophet that in chapter 5 gave us Bethlehem for the birthplace of Christ. And then in chapter 7 
Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat, or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land. So imagine if, okay, so if you're a grape picker and there's a total famine, there's not a grape to be found, then what can you do as a grape picker? You're out of work, right? If you're a prophet and there's not a single believer in the land positive to doctrine, (laughs) you know, if you're a pastor but you're the only Christian in town, you're in a pretty small church. Anyway, the godly person has perished from the land. There is no upright person among them. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. So there's violence, there's deceit, there's enticements. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. So this is, he's an ambidextrous evildoer. (laughs) You know, multifaceted. Very inventive and creative. In fact, he's not content just to be a right-handed evildoer. He's taught himself to use his left hand while he's at it. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And a great man speaks the desire of a soul. So they weave it together. We have coordination. We have conspiracy. We have a combination here. And now the politicians are in on it. The judges are in on it. The wealthier in on it. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright like a thorn hedge. So even uh, the public figures that keep the outward expression of piety, they're involved in the same thing. The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come and then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From her who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Notice she's not a wife. She's just, you know, her who lies in your bosom. You talk about a breakdown of culture. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. I think the prophet Micah would... uh, relate very well to our day and age. I think he would really look around and see where our culture has plunged to and gone, oh yeah, I had that in my day. This is what you're dealing with. Conspiring and coordinated calamity. These wicked winkers. And I'm not going to go back again to Proverbs 6, but you see it's part of what God hates. Six things that God hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And uh, the, the coordinated conspiracy the the one that spreads strife among brothers is uh is the worst of them all now in Jesus's messages Matthew 26 and Matthew 27 we see this and the conspiracy here when uh Judas uh arranged for his betrayal Matthew 26 we know this real well Satan wants him dead. The Pharisees want him dead. The Sanhedrin wants him dead. There wasn't a lot that Pharisees and Sadducees would agree on. <laughs> they, they argued a lot. They, they rarely cooperated. And then you throw in the Herodians and you throw in the, <coughs> the Zealots 
You throw in the different parties that were always, always at odds against each other. Vying for power, vying for control over the Jewish people. The one thing they found to agree on, none of them liked Jesus. (laughs) Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, they all wanted him gone. Zealots. All right. So in Matthew 26, um, verse 14, one of the twelve, and even prior to this verse, um, in verse 3, the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. So it's a, it's a huge conspiracy. And the goal is murder, but not at the expense of their public image. Not at the expense of public opinion. Not where the people would know about it or see it or, or object. A riot might occur among the people. He has to die, but the people like him. So how do, how do we do this? And uh, that's why I think, again, like Proverbs is talking about, it's giving us a message related to violence and deceit. Violence and enticement. And so most likely um, one of the issues that drove Judas over the edge was the fact that that, uh, he wasn't able to steal as much as he would like. He was a thief. And uh, he took offense at the uh, value of the perfume that he thought was wasted here when uh, Jesus gets anointed by this woman. All right, down to verse 14 then. One of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, uh, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? What's this worth to you? Name your price. And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And he accepted it. And I don't think it's that much, really, you know. Um, in fact, it's even almost insulting when it comes right down to it. Jeremiah says it's insulting. So from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Again, he wants to do it, but he can't do it just any old time. He wants to do it at the right time, the opportune time, a fitting time. Fitting for what? Well, he didn't want to get caught either. <laughs> but he wants to do it in such a way where he can collect his cash and where it's not known that he is the traitor. He wants to be known as the righteous one, the, the treasure, one that's trusted. You know, he didn't trust Peter with the money, he didn't trust John with the money. Yeah, John could rely on his breast and everything, but Judas was the treasurer. What a trusted friend. Jesus even calls him friend. So get down to verse 21 then. Um, so evening comes, he's reclining with his disciples. They, they were eating and he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he answered, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl is the one who will betray me. You know, we've all done this, we've all been there. We've been at a party, we've been in a thing and, and uh, you're, you're dipping your... Uh, your Dorito into the into the salsa. And then there was that awkward moment where your hand went in there at the same time uh, Jesus' hand went in there or somebody else's hand went in there. 
right? Oh, awkward, okay. So you pull your hand out, he pulls his hand out. And you are the only two that saw it. You're the only two that shared that common experience. And then an hour later, when Jesus said, the one that dipped with me. See, this is such grace on Jesus' part. Because he knows who the traitor is. And Judas obviously knows who the traitor is. But now Judas knows that Jesus knows. And in a very gracious way, nobody else has a clue. But Judas knows. Now this is his chance. He can confess. He can come clean. He can throw himself on the Lord for mercy. Because Jesus nailed him. He's when he says, he who dipped his hand with me in the bowl. And Judas says, ooh, that was me. And instead, he's like, oh, me too? Well, you know, he acts all innocent. He says, oh, I don't know. I wasn't there. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, every time Jesus gives people a chance to confess, quite often they just blow it. They don't confess. Adam didn't. Eve didn't. Cain didn't. Surely not I, Lord. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Wow, what a what a grace opportunity, and yet he does not uh, he does not take it. Down to verse forty six, and it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, he does slip out at a point here uh, to go fetch the soldiers, and so when he slips out, then um, Jesus is going to go away, and um, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and he's praying, and then. Um, finds him asleep a third time they're still sleeping so he came come to his disciples and said to them are you still sleeping and resting behold the hour is at hand the son of man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners get up let us be going the the one who betrays me is at hand here comes the wicked winker the conspired and coordinated calamity is about to be unleashed and it's going to happen with a kiss while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. That can't be good. Came with the chief priests and the elders of the people. And he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he's the one, seize him. You know, this is called conspiracy. In the state of Texas, if you're, if you're driving the getaway vehicle, or if you, you know, you can be tried for murder. Yeah, you didn't pull the trigger, but you're part of the, you're part of the conspiracy. You're an accessory. Whomever I kiss, he's the one. Immediately Jesus, Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. All right. Anyway, we have it there. Chapter 27 then. He regrets it. 27.3 When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. See, you get these wicked conspiracies together, not everybody has the same motivation. Some have other purposes. And they're working together for their evil. Judas never thought that Jesus would accept the arrest. That he would just silently go along with it. That he'd be condemned. That's not what he bargained for. Not what he wanted. So he uh, goes to return and says, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they say, that's not our business. (laughs) What is that to us? See to that yourself. So he threw the piece of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and he went away and hanged himself. 
And then that leaves them with a conundrum. <laughs> what do we do with this money? It's not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it's the price of blood. What great legalists. We can't accept this offering. It's blood money. You know, <laughs> like the deacons and they find uh, money in the grace box and whatever and it's the price of something wicked. Well, we can't, we can't keep that. But you're the ones that paid that. Yes, it's blood money and it's your blood money. See, the hypocrisy on this is just huge. So they decided to buy the potter's field as a burial place for strangers and uh, totally uh, oblivious to the fact that that Jeremiah and Zechariah have been talking about this for 500 years, longer, 600 years. Anyway, that marvelous price that was set by the sons of Israel. All right, well, we'll come back next week and we will close with uh, chapter 16 with three timeless truths. We'll talk about getting old. If you have any gray-headed friends, bring them with you next week. A gray head is a crown of glory. And then uh, verse 32, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So um, yeah, if you have any impatient friends, any temper tantrum throwers, uh, bring them next week also. We'll get them as well. And then the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Uh, this is all about luck. We have a, a all about luck. And if you're uh, if you're praying for luck, you're praying for the wrong thing, because what the world calls luck, God calls sovereignty. It's His plan. It's what He wants to accomplish. And so, yeah, the lot is cast into the lap. You you, you flip a coin a hundred times. What are the results? The results are what God wants them to be. 100 times out of 100. And it's, uh, it's Calvinist luck when, when, uh, when it comes down to that. But Not that I'm a Calvinist, but we'll talk about this. This is a powerful verse. It's a powerful verse because, let me tell you something, we live in a culture, we're surrounded by people who um, are, are, are living a hopeless life thinking that the deck is stacked against them. Thinking that they're just victims of, of bad luck. You know? I would have done this, but man, it was just bad luck. Or, oh, and, and they view themselves as slaves to circumstances. And if it just wasn't for that bit of bad luck, see, or they're envious of somebody else because they seem to have all the good luck. And their whole life is of covet, coveting and envy and and no, you and I, we, this world is not about luck and random things. It's not about our circumstances. We're not slaves to the circumstances. And so that one verse right there that closes Proverbs 16, is, uh, it's, it's a fun one to preach, it's a fun one to study, it's a fun one to think about. And, uh, and the Bible says a lot about, about this very issue, not just that one little lonesome verse right there. There's a lot in there that, uh, that are going to bless us as we as we get to it. So that'll be one week from today, Lord willing and rapture pending. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your truth. Thank you for all of your grace, Father. Um, Day by day, moment by moment, generation after generation, you are the faithful one. We give you the praise and the glory in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.